0: Cold. Sorry. Hopefully, it won't bother you the whole Sunday, though. Okay, that'll be all right. Hey, did you have a good uh, Christmas and New Year's? Happy New Year to everybody! And uh, so, um, I don't know about you, but we just we just had a really special Advent season. It was just so great to celebrate uh, all the different candles as we went through and focus our eyes on Jesus. Uh, today, we're resuming a study that we started. Thank you, Tom. Um, a little while back um, in Hebrews. And you'll remember, we got all the way through chapter 6, and then we stopped, and now we're picking it back up in chapter 7. And um, the reason we picked the book of Hebrews, the, the kind of the, the line I'm using in my head, in my heart, is um, it's a line from, uh, from Hebrews, it's let us fix our eyes on Jesus, right? Let us fix our eyes on... On Jesus, because Jesus plus nothing truly does me equal everything, right? It equals everything. Jesus is everything to us. And when we remember who he is, we can remember who we are. And when we remember who we are, we can remember how to act like ourselves. Does that make sense? Uh, um, Neurologists, uh, neuroscientists tell us there are these things called mirror neurons. Have you ever heard of this, mirror neurons? That we have in our brains, literally the way God wired us, we have the capacity to look at something and mimic, mirror what we're seeing. And this, of course, you see in kids all the time, right? My my son the other day, I was working on something, and Jude, uh, he wanted to come help me. Right? He wanted to help me, and so uh, we went to the garage, and he wanted a little screwdriver, and he wanted a little level, and he wanted it, right? And so here he is just choking it all up the stairs. And, and he's, what is he doing? He's mimicking, he's mirroring his, his daddy, right? And we do this even as adults. We don't think we're doing this, but we have these mirror neurons that help us know how to act. know how. To, so what we look at and admire and fix our eyes on Actually, whether we know it or not, subconsciously it's translating into behavior change, into formation of who we become, and it is changing who we are. So what who we look at, who we admire, who we focus our eyes upon, determines who we become. That's what that means. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. A.W. Tozer, who is a pastor, I don't know if you know his name, but he said one time, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He's talking about that same idea, mirror neurons. Who we look at, how we think about God determines who we become. And so if you conceive of God, for example, as angry, disappointed, um, critical, judgmental, negative, you know what that will make you? Critical, negative, judgmental, grumpy. But if you conceive of God as he is, as revealed in scripture, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, self-mastery, then what will that make you, you see? So so who God is is the most important thing about us as we look at him. And so Hebrews is about fixing our eyes on Jesus in order that not just that we might see him, but that we might become like him, okay? Okay? That's where we're going with this. So we are taking our eyes in this year as we break Hebrews up, and we are just focusing on Jesus, not only that we might see him, but that we might become more like him. Okay? It makes sense? So that's where we're at. I feel like the lights are really low up here. Are they, am I dark? Do I look dark? I have been tanning, but <laughs> anyway. Okay, I'll trust you guys. You guys will figure it out. All right. Um, so you'll remember in Hebrews, (laughs) this is Jared Height. Oh, he did a great job, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's funny. That's funny. That was really low to the ground. Okay. Um, (laughs) anyway. All right. So, uh, you'll remember in the book of Hebrews, there's two main themes we talked about. There's atonement and enthronement. Actually, I got them out of order. Uh, no, I, got, I had them in order. Atonement and enthronement. Atonement and enthronement. Everything in Hebrews orients around these twin pillars of. Atonement, the atoning work of Jesus, that he came, he he incarnated himself, right? He lived among us, he died on the cross, he rose again and ascended to the Father. And in this work, this cross work of what Jesus did, he made atonement for our sins, and now he is sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, enthroned on high. So you have atonement and you have enthronement. And um, he, we get this from chapter 1, verse 3. You remember kind of the main verse here? Uh, Hebrews says, After making atonement for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So ent- uh, enthronement means Jesus is king, and atonement means Jesus is our high priest. Okay? So uh, enthronement is about Jesus as king. Atonement is about Jesus as Priest. And if you remember, in chapter 6, we were zeroing in a little bit on how Jesus is the high priest, the great high priest that we need. He knows our weaknesses. He passed through the veil into the holy place. He's made purification for sins, and he intercedes on behalf of the people of God. And there was a phrase that we used several times that Jesus is a high priest after the order of, and some of you remember this word, Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek. And we just put a pin in that. We said, we'll talk about it later. Today is the time we're going to pull the pin out. We're actually going to start to deal with who Melchizedek is. So grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, looking at the first 10 verses. We're just going to open this conversation up. It's going to take us a few more verses to kind of Nail it all down, uh, but we're going to start today. Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to look at the first 10 verses. Let me read them for us, and then we'll jump right in in our study, okay? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 10. This is page uh, 1004, wrapping around to 1005 in the black Pew Bible in the rack by your knees. So if you don't have a Bible with you, just grab that, pull it out, uh, page 1004 to 1005. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham, Abraham, excuse me, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham's apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. (laughs) Thanks be to the Lord for the reading of his word. Some passages are easy. Other ones are hard, and then you get little phrases like, he was still in the loins of his ancestor, and you can't hardly keep yourself from laughing, right? I mean, that's just funny to me. Is that funny? I'm like a little kid up here, all right? That's funny to me. All right, who talks like that? Anyway, uh, so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to organize our thoughts around three questions, okay? Who is this Melchizedek? Why bring him up? And what does he mean for us, Okay. Uh, Who is this Melchizedek? Why bring Melchizedek up and what Melchizedek means for us, okay? So let's dig in here first. Who is this Melchizedek? Well, what you have in this text is a reference back to an old story an obscure story in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 14. That's where Melchizedek shows up for the very first time, and we have to go back there. So grab your your Bibles, hang a left, okay, all the way back, basically to the beginning. This is page 10 in your pew Bible, so really right at the beginning, right past the introduction and the table of contents, nine pages, click, click, click in, and there you are, Genesis 14, okay? Um, Genesis 14, verses 8 to 20 here we're going to have to read this and walk through it a little bit just to get our bearings, okay? Genesis 14, verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with um, uh, Keterleamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amphrel, king of Shinar, and Ariach, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Uh, it's not important, but uh, uh, Kedar Leamer was the main power king in the region. And so everyone was sort of, there, he was kind of considered the suzerain, if you know that language, suzerain vassals. You had vassal states which were protected by a bigger king. Keterleamar is the, is the suzerain. He's the big daddy king. And then all the other city states are around this. These are, these are not kings like kingdoms. These are kings like Mayors of a city. Okay, so they rule the cities that they live in. Okay, so th- in that sense, all right. So there's four, four kings now against five. There's a rebellion in, in, in the Middle East. There's a there's a there's a regional conflict in the Middle East. Uh, you know, it, things have changed, but you know that's how it was then. Okay. So anyway, uh, verse verse ten. Now the valley of Sidim was full of uh, bitumen uh, pits. And uh, uh, which is uh, like tar pits. Um, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and some of them fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. And so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and they went on their way. They also took Lot, okay, little note, this is Abraham's nephew who has been living in Sodom, okay. So he, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's Brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and all of his possessions, and went on their way. So uh, now the now the stage is set uh, because Abraham is going to go have to rescue his deadbeat nephew Lot. Okay, seriously, that's that's what's going on here. Thirteen. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eskel and Ad and Anner. These were allied with Abram. So to the victor go the spoils. Abraham is now just laden down with all this booty from his, his conquest here. He's very wealthy. He's coming back. Verse 17. After his return from the t- defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, here he is. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Boom. That's it. Did you see it? That was Melchizedek. That's it. Great story, right? Uh, the king of Sodom comes to meet Abram, who has finally defeated everything, got all of the king of Sodom's booty back from, you know, from, the, from the people who took it. And so Abraham comes with his entourage and people, and the king's like, hey, I, you know, those are my people, i got to meet with you. And so they get together, and Melchizedek shows up, serves some bread and wine, and gives a blessing, and Abram gives him 10%. End of story. That's really like very little information, isn't it? And then you get some clues. You get some clues. You get Melchizedek, right, his name. And, and, and of course, Hebrews is going to pick up on this. Uh, His name is Melak, which means king, uh, and Sadik, which means righteousness, put together, uh, king of righteousness, Melchizedek, uh, king of righteousness, king of Salem. He is called here, Salem means peace, of course, but most likely this is a reference to that he is king of uh, what is now known as Jerusalem, before Abram's ever been there, but Jerusalem, Yeru, foundation or house or city of shalom, peace, Yeru, shalom, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So this guy's probably king of Jerusalem before um, for Abraham and before Isaac and Jacob and Moses and coming into the land and possessing it and setting up the capital of Israel, okay? So this is, this is very interesting stuff. He is called priest of the Most High God. This is the very God that Abraham is serving and following, but just for two chapters, Right? He was called back in chapter 12, so we don't know very much. God says, Abram, come follow me. I'll take you to a land. I'll give you a name, a blessing. I will make you into a great nation. He knows very little. He's on pilgrimage, right? And, and here he is working his way into the land. And sh- here's a priest who's apparently a priest of the Most High God that God's got something going on with on the side, Right? So he's doing a thing with Abraham, making a great nation, but there's this priesthood off to the side, and it's like, what's going on? And here they meet, and he brings out bread and wine and blesses him, and Abraham's like, hey, take 10% of me booty, right? And, and there it goes, and that's all we have. That's all we have here. Um, the only other, there's no backstory, there's no explanation, there's no development, there's no closure. I mean, if this were Star Wars after Disney got a hold of it, you'd think, oh, there's going to be a little side movie series coming off this character, and they're going to they're make a whole bunch of billions of more dollars off of this guy, right? And he, but he just sits there, just sits there, and it doesn't really go anywhere until Hebrews picks it up. It's very fascinating. There's one other reference, we'll talk about it in a little bit. But here's the point. Abram, who is, think about it, he's really a great man. God has handpicked him. He says, I will make you great. I will give you a great name. I will give you a seed and a blessing, and you are going to be a man of consequence, right? That's a big deal, right? And he just beat the snot out of the biggest king who beat the snot out of the other guys. And so there's nine kings. They all beat each other up. One left standing. Abram went and took him. So who's top dog in the region? Abraham. I mean, he, he's, no one's a bigger deal in this area, area of, of, of the land than, than Abraham. And Melchizedek comes up and serves bread and wine, and Abraham's like, dude, you get 10%. What's going on? There was something about Melchizedek that caught his attention. And here's the point, Melchizedek is the greater king-priest. That's the punchline of the story. Melchizedek is the greater king-priest. Melchizedek, whoever he is, and we have no clue. Okay, There's lots of theories. People are like, maybe this is like Jesus, sneak preview of Jesus. Maybe this is an angel thing. Maybe th-. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's all speculation. We know what we know. But there was something about the presence of Melchizedek That when Abram met him, he knew this guy was different. There was a weight, a gravitas, a presence to Melchizedek. And Abram said, as great as I am, as great as God has made me, as great as the victory I just won, all the wealth, prestige, honor that I have, it is nothing to who you are. And he gives him this tithe this act of giving 10% is signaling something. This is what a suzerain would ask of a vassal. Okay, take Give me 10% of your GDP, and I will protect you, and I will be the overlord, and I will watch over you. This is what they would do. And so what you have here is when Abram gives 10% to Melchizedek, he's saying, you be my suzerain, I will be your vassal. I will serve you. So now what has Melchizedek done? Just bread and wine. <laughs> just bread and wine. Abram just won a great military victory. There's no one stronger than him. Melchizedek's on his own. Bread and wine. You be, my, you be my suzerain. I will be your vassal. I will pay homage and tribute to you. And so Melchizedek, he blesses Abram, which of course is what a Lord would do to a subject. Point is, Melchizedek is the greater priest king. Okay? You with me so far? All right. Now, why bring him up? Why bring him up? Hebrews is saying here, Jesus is our great high priest. That's the argument he's making. Jesus is the one who made atonement for our sins. Amen? Oh, you can all say amen to that. Jesus is the one who made atonement for our sins. Amen? Amen. Amen. Good. So, we have a problem. We have a problem, and that is Jesus is not a Levite, okay? Jesus is not a Levite. Jesus is a descendant of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of the kings. David's from Judah, and Jesus is in David's line. He's from the tribe of Judah, okay? He's from the tribe of the kings. The Levites, the descendants of Levi, one of the 12 brothers of of Israel, the, the 12 tribes, The Levites were the ones who were in charge of the priesthood and the temple and the worship of God and all of this. So you have kings from Judah, and you have priests from the tribe of Levi. So we have a problem because Jesus is from Judah, and he's not from Levi. He's qualified to be king, but he's not qualified to be priest. You see the problem? There's a separation of powers, if you will, within Israel's government system. Right? Which is wise. Our whole government's based off of this. You have kings and you have priests, but they can't be the same. Right? That makes sense. There's too much power in one place, so there's separate separation of powers. So, and here's the problem that Hebrews has enthronement and atonement can't go together. (laughs) He can be, Jesus can be king, but he can't be priest, or he can be priesthood, he can't be. King, you, you can either have enthronement or atonement, but you can't have both in the old architecture of the tribal system. Okay? This is our problem. And Hebrews says, okay, but the problem is Jesus is both king and priest. So what do we do with that? Okay? Melchizedek, here's your solution. Melchizedek. Because God did this one other time. He did it actually two other times when he had priest and king together. Do you know what the other time it was? David. David. Look with me at Psalm 110, okay? We're going to have to go back for this one. This is page 509. Psalm 110, page 509 in the Pew Bible. This is a royal psalm. And it is a psalm that is written in honor of the throne, the Davidic throne uh, of David, okay? The throne in Jerusalem in Israel. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, okay, notice the the font change. So the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, this is Yahweh, the King, God. It says to my Lord, small L O R D, which is Adonai, which is also the word that is used of the King David. So this is God speaking to David now. The Lord says to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." Now, some, pause for a second. Some of you are immediately picking up on this, and you're like, "Wait a minute, where have I heard that?" You heard that in Hebrews one thirteen. When God's quotes, it's quoted in Hebrews 13 about Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So the writer of Hebrews has already taken Psalm 110 and applied it to Jesus. It was originally written about David, the Davidic king. It is now being fulfilled in Jesus, the Davidic son, the true son of God. Okay? So this psalm has already been applied to Jesus. Read with me. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning to the, the dew of your youth will be yours. David, your king, your rule will be extended and grow. Your kingdom will be established is what he's saying. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, what is going on? Do you see it? Now, this is the same verse that is quoted back in chapter 5, verse 6 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6 quoted this verse and said it referred to Jesus. So it was originally uttered about David and is now being applied to Jesus. So now we have two verses in Psalm 110 that are being applied both to David and now to Jesus. Right? Sit on the throne until your enemies are a footstool. You see, notice this? What's that about? Kingship and enthronement. And now you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is about priesthood, king and priest. See what's going on? And he says, Now, but with God at your side, enemies beware. Verses 5, 6, and 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over, chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, brook by the way. Therefore, he'll lift up his head. The whole point of that is if God is, don't, don't resist the king that God set up. That's, that's the point. Now, so here's, here's where this is going. Melchizedek signifies a greater king-priest trajectory. Melchizedek signifies, he's not just a greater priest king in the Old Testament. He signifies a greater king priest trajectory that's coming. So there was once a king priest called Melchizedek. He's the greatest person Abraham ever met. There was another king priest in David. He was the greatest king Israel ever knew. And there's a greater king priest coming, and we're waiting. For who he will be. It's going somewhere. Now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on, Philip. Hold on. How on earth is David a priest? I mean, I get the king thing. But priest? Really? When did David act like a priest? I mean, he's not a, he's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He didn't wear the robes. He didn't have the funny hat. He didn't go in and serve in the temple. And like, he's not a priest, is he? Is he? How is he a priest? Well, he wasn't a priest per se, but let me just, see, okay, in my preparation, here's what happens. I'm I'm reading in my commentaries, all the scholars are like, their minds are like, (laughs) because no one knows how to make any sense of this. He's clearly the king, but in what sense is David a priest after the order of Melchizedek? That doesn't make any sense. Does it? So I'm like, okay, wait a minute. It's got to make sense. So I'm like digging around. I'm trying to figure this out. Think about it. Who brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem so that the worship of God could start again? Who did that? David. Uh, Who made all the plans and laid out the funds for the building of the temple? He didn't get to build it, but his son did. But he set all the stuff in motion. Who did that? David. Who wrote Israel's hymnal? The Psalms. David did. Most of it which was a Levitical function. The Levites led in the worship in the temple. That's what they did. 2 Samuel 24. Write this down. We're not going to look at it now. But go look it up. 2 Samuel 24. David goes and builds an altar and, quote, sacrifices burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, end quote, and prays on behalf of the land that God would stop a plague that was coming. And God heard his prayer and healed the land. That's priestly function, friends. That's priestly function. So he's not a priest per se, but he's, he's a king priest. He's unique a little bit like this. So this king-priest trajectory that starts in Melchizedek is going somewhere. Yes, kings are from Judah. Yes, priests are normally from Levi. And it's normally all about lineage. But God has colored out of the lines before. He colored out of the lines with Melchizedek. He colored out of the lines with David. And he can do it again. He's allowed to. Because, listen, and this is his point, it's not about lineage anymore. It's not about lineage anymore. In fact, Melchizedek, we don't even he doesn't even have a lineage. We don't even know. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know what became of him. It's he just came out of nowhere. He disappears into the void. He might still be alive out there. Who knows, right? you kind of say, well, this is, that's kind of a weird interpretive scheme. Well, I, I get it. This was a Jewish way of reading. They had this phrase, this is translated into Latin, but it, non in Torah, non in mundo. Non in Torah, non in mundo. Not in the Torah, not in the world. This idea, if the Bible doesn't talk about it, it doesn't exist. So the fact is, the Bible doesn't record his lineage. The Bible doesn't record his death or demise. The Bible doesn't say anything about where he came from or where he went. So he basically, it doesn't exist. He just doesn't exist. He's just this mystery guy. He shows up. Here he is. The point is, Melchizedek is not a descendant of Levi. It doesn't work chronologically, and it doesn't work because the text doesn't say anything. He has no lineage. Lineage of does not matter when it comes to a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's the point. David is a priest, not because he's de- descended from Levi, but because God established him as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. There is a priestly order. This is his point. There is a priestly order beyond lineage that would normally come down from the tribe of levi it is the order of melchizedek and it is in this priesthood that jesus stands and it just so happens to be the greatest priesthood line of all it is the order that is greater than any other so finally what's what does it mean for us what does this mean for us So the writer is drawing together all these strands, all these connections, to make one simple point. And here it is. Jesus' priesthood is of the order of Melchizedek, and the Melchizedekian priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. The Melchizedekian priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's why he spends all this time talking about tithing here. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, just like the Jews tithed to the Levites. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and blessings always flow from the greater to the lesser. And Abram tithed to Melchizedek, and tithes always flow to the superior. His point is this. The nation tithed to Levites, The Levites descended from Abraham, and Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. So if you're going to rank all of this, Melchizedek is greater than everybody else. Do you see that? This is his logic. And he even goes, you could even say Levi paid tithes sort of through Abraham because he was going to come out of Abraham later, right? That's like the, because he's his great-great-grandfather, right? So this, this, which is funny logic to us, but it makes sense in his mind. The point is this. Jesus is the greatest king priest of all. Jesus is the greatest king priest of all. Listen, friends. Jesus is not just king of kings. King of all kings. And he's not just enthroned at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus is the priest of all priests. And he is the one who has made a once-for-all time atonement for the sins of humanity. Which means that Jesus' priestly work, friends, is not just valid, eligible, because he has a legitimate priesthood. It means that his priestly work is superior to every other priestly work that preceded him. Melchizedek trumps Levi, and Jesus trumps Melchizedek. That's how this goes. And so Hebrews is saying, again, very simply, back on uh, on message, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, friends. And listen, listen. No matter what's going on, I live in the same world you do. Impeachments, North Korea, Iran, 2020 elections, Baby Yoda, just whatever, whatever's going on. Listen, the point is this this is real. This is true. This is solid. This is bedrock. Jesus is enthroned on high, and he has made a once for all atonement for the sins of the world. He is King of all kings. And priest of all priests. Friends, you have a king. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And no matter what's going on in your life, Jesus is king. Amen? Amen. And no matter what's going on, you have a high priest who is interceding at the Father's right hand on your behalf. And Jesus is your priest no matter what. Amen? Jesus is the greatest king, priest of all. And we're going to spend the next couple weeks unpacking that and figuring out what all that means. But let me just land the plane here today. January is the month where we make resolutions, right? We make resolutions. We all say, well, I'm going to be this. I'm going to do this. I wanted to. Okay, listen. And that's all good. I mean, I've got a couple of them. You know, I've been working out for five days straight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can't you tell? I'm so buff. Um, listen, that's all good. That's all fun. Okay. But what if we resolve to make 2020 the year we live in light of the superlative greatness of Jesus? What if we resolve to make 2020 the year we, make, we, we live in light of the superlative greatness of Jesus? There's no one greater. How do you know Abraham encountered superlative greatness? It changed him, didn't it? He gave up 10. He realized where he stood. He came under the authority and protection and leadership of Melchizedek, and he gave him 10%. Because when you encounter the greatness, true greatness, you can't be the same. You can't be the same the weight, the gravitas, the presence of greatness will change who you are when you see it. The word in Hebrew for glory is kavod. Can you say that with me? Kavod. I'll try again. Kavod. Kavod, yeah, it means weight. Weight. Heaviness. In other words, if if you put yourself in the scale and you put glory in the other side, poof, There's a weightiness to the glorious presence. Now, now because it had a fraction of it, Jesus has way more. And to see and behold the glory, the weightiness of Jesus and who he is will change you. And you say, well, what has Jesus done? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. (laughs) Bread and wine. I know we're Baptists as grape juice, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> that is funny. I just bread and wine. What did he do? And listen, Melchizedek came after Abraham had to fight the battle. Jesus came after. Jesus fought the battle for us. Jesus went up not just against nine kings, Jesus went up against hell. And he won. And he's victorious. And we are Lot. (laughs) We're not Abraham in this story. We're Lot. We're the one that, you know, just got hauled off. We're Lot. And he comes and serves bread and wine. This is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out to create a new covenant, to make me right, to make you right with God through me bread and wine this is your great high priest enthroned above the heavens he's done everything he's your hero what would it look like what would it look like in terms of time talent treasure and touch if you think about the parts of your life what would it look like to live under the weight, the gravitas, the, the heaviness of the cavode of Jesus. 10%, 10% would make all the difference, wouldn't it? <laughs> Here's my point. This is not a sermon about tithing, and yet it is. Here's my point. If Abram saw Melchizedek... And thought 10% is necessary here? 10% of my life, 10% of my time, 10% of my authority, 10% of my resources, 10% of my right? How would we dare give Jesus anything less? To see Jesus and go, yeah, 2.5 is probably fine. I'll I'll settle for 5%. I'll just what does Jesus deserve? hundred percent. The question is, what am I gonna hold back? My my point is this if we live in 2020 under the superlative greatness of Jesus, it's gonna change us. Can I just challenge you? Here's how, here's how you know if you've encountered the superlative greatness of Jesus, whether it's made it a minimum of a 10% impact in your life, in every sphere. That's how you know. If you're shy, shy of that, you, I, don't know how you, I don't know how we can stand before Jesus and say, I've seen you. I've beheld your glory. I don't know how we could say that. Anyway, you're, you're thoughtful people. You think this out. But this is him 100% for you. And he says, come follow me with everything you've got. Come follow would you pray with me? Father, you are the greatest. And your son, Jesus, is crowned with glory and honor. And we rally our lives around him. This table is everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything for us. And Father, in light of all that you are for us, all that Christ is for us, all that the Spirit does inside of us, Father, we, we want to give you our lives as living sacrifices. It's only right. It's only appropriate. It's only fitting. It's reasonable, this act of worship, to give you all that we are and hold nothing back. Father, teach us to live under the weight of glory. May 2020 be a year that we live in light of your superlative greatness. Help us to see you, to see your joy, your smile, your love, your sacrifice, your courage, your greatness, and to find our place under your loving gaze. You desire, deserve, demand all of us and we give it freely for your glory and for our good. We thank you for this table, for these elements of your mercy and grace. And we come now, we ask that you would meet us here. As we imbibe these symbols, Lord, would you Fill us and reside within us. Become Lord and Master and King over us. Jesus, would you pray and intercede that we might become holy and fully yours. Help us to follow you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion now.